This is week two of the Legends and Misfits series, and it's called that because they are legendary figures. That doesn't mean they're untrue figures, they're real figures. Uh, but, but what it means is that we, we know about their stories, and their stories have been told and retold and told and retold uh, and passed down from generation to generation all the way up to us. And so they're legendary in that way, but they're also misfits, quote-unquote, uh, in the sense that they're not the ones you would think of when you think of, or, or maybe I should say a closer look at their lives would show that their lives are not necessarily um, the kinds of lives we would expect when we think of uh, the people that, that get in on what God is doing. Now, for you Sunday Nighters, you'll remember last summer we did a series very similar to this called Improbable Icons, and uh, one can only guess that that's where Pastor Brady got the idea from, but don't tell him I've said that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but we Sunday nighters like to think we're on the edge of, uh, of the trend here. But here we are, week two of this Legends and Misfits series. Last week we did Abraham, uh, and, and tonight we're going to be looking at, at a different character. But uh, before we get into that, I just want to set it up a little bit. Uh, you know, I don't know how, um, what you do to, to prepare for the year. We've been inspired by a lot of uh, couples that are older than us that have said that, you know, for years, every year at the beginning of the year, they go away and they pray and they seek the Lord for the beginning of the year, and and, and you know, I think we've, we've had good intentions of that in the past and have not always come through on it. Uh, this year, however, things worked out uh, mostly through my wife's persistence that we were able to get away a little bit and, and take stock and, and pray and journal a little bit and pray over our kids and our family. And, and maybe sometimes when you do that, you know, one of the questions that's a great question to ask is to say, well, what is God doing in our lives right now? How is God at work in us? Uh, where do we see His hand or how do we see His sense, His spirit? But sometimes as we're answering this question, tell me if you've ever felt this way, but I certainly have, where as you're answering that question, you find yourself saying, you know, I think that, that God's work in my life would, would uh, be more productive or things would be more successful, quote-unquote, if only th- this thing was different or if only these things were different. Have any of you felt that way? Like, look, look, I've got this sort of sense in my life, but man, if only this were different, if only this were different, if maybe these few things would change, then maybe we could get on with it. Uh, and chances are, at some point in your life, maybe when you came to faith in Christ, uh, you had the sense that God put his hand on your life and marked you and you began to be on a different trajectory. And so you said, okay, look, here we go. This is, this is the beginning of something. You got baptized, you got saved, whatever the moment was for you. And then it just sort of feels like it's been stops and starts and you're kind of going and then you, you tripped up and you hit a speed bump and then you're going again and you get tripped up and 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 deep down inside you kind of feel like you know what god if you would just change the situations or the circumstances or the environments or the places i find myself in god if you would change those things then my spiritual walk would go better anybody felt that way and sometimes god does change those things but the there are other times when God chooses to work smack dab in the middle of those things, despite the fact that nothing really is different, or maybe the things that are happening are not quite the things you were expecting. Greg was telling me a story about one year where he and Cindy said, okay, this is going to be the best year ever. And they like, you know, just like, yes, Lord, we believe this is going to be the best year ever. And then like the very next day, I, I can't remember what it was that happened, but it was like, yeah, catastrophic, you know. And, and, uh, and um, so anyway, th- there are moments like that where we sort of anticipate, okay, things are going to go good and then no. And maybe when you think about what those things are that are different, 
maybe a lot of us would point to the workplace that we're in, the environment that we're in, maybe the job, maybe the city, maybe the state of our nation, quote-unquote. This political season that we're in, there's certainly lots of talk about, man, if this were different or if that were different, and I can make things different, and some of us that have been around for a while are saying, no, you can't really make it, you know, and, and you sort of, you, you, you think, well, maybe what the church should do is to rise up against the system of the world. I think there are times for that. I think there are times when part of what it means to be the people of God is to rise up against. Uh, Time magazine, uh, they, they named their person of the year each year. Well, in 2011, they named their person of the year the protester. And uh, the, the, the cover of it, I don't know if we have it or not, but the cover of it was, was a fist. Did any of you see this? It was the, the protest fist. And because 2011 saw a lot of protests from the Arab Spring to Occupy Wall Street to whatever it is, you have a, a group that perceives or maybe accurately is oppressed or pushed down, and they're rising up. And that describes a lot of times how we think. We think, okay, look, God's got a mission for us as the people of God, but look, these evil forces or these government systems or whatever it is, it's keeping us down. The man has got me down. And the response for the people of God is, we're going to rise up against it, and God, would you empower our revolt? Sometimes he does. But in this person's life that we're going to look at today, God instead makes him thrive within a system that is wicked. Now that's a very different way to look at it. This is the life of Joseph. Maybe if we talked about Moses, which we may in a couple of weeks, Moses is the one who confronts Egypt and the wicked ruler and the wicked system and says, let my people go and speaks up for the oppressed. There are times to do that. But there are also times when, here we, like in the life of Joseph, where you find yourself in places that you did not choose. You know, look, when we look at the life of Joseph, it would be a, a big temptation to turn the stories of the Old Testament into um, morality tales. You know, these are stories about how you should be. Step one, boast to your brothers until they are tempted to throw you in a pit and then sell you as a slave. Step two, find yourself in the grasp of a woman who's trying to seduce you. Some of you are like, really? That's one of the steps, you know? Like, I'm, I'm good, I'm there. You know, no. Listen, this is the problem with treating the Bible like a book of principles or a, 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 a set of morality tales of, look, pattern your life after Joseph. There are things about Joseph, we'll see in a moment, that we should emulate. But I suggest to you the real message of the life of Joseph is not do these things and live this way, but the real message of the life of Joseph is in spite of where you find yourself, do you believe that God is at work to redeem? That's the power. That's why the Old Testament reading is this section where towards the very end, the kind of the climactic moment of Joseph's story, we're sort of giving the punchline away. And Joseph says, look, you meant all of this for bad, but my God turned it into something that worked out for good. That's the power of it. In a very real way, you could say the story of Joseph is just as much about the things he could not choose that were beyond his control as it is about the things that he could choose and did choose. What I love about the Old Testament is it doesn't pretend to tell you how life should be. It just tells you how life is. It's very honest. This morning at New Life Sunday School, I was teaching on Ecclesiastes and, and, and Lamentations. Real uplifting time. We, we had a great time together. Um, 
But we were talking about this, about how, look, these sections of the Bible are not given to you in the same way that Galatians is given to you or that 2 Timothy is given to you that prescribe things and tell you to live this way. A lot of the Old Testament is not hiding anything from you. It's just sort of saying to you, this is how life is. Sometimes it's not fair, is it? That's kind of Ecclesiastes. And in the life of Joseph, we see that. It's like, look, sometimes things don't work out the way you thought they were going to be when you were young and full of ideals. Sometimes things happen. So Joseph's life. We're going to look at four particular points in his life. And at each point, we're going to raise a question. A question because, remember, okay, if these are not morality tales and these are not um, uh, how life should be, it sort of just shows us how life is and shows us God at work in the midst of it. It's also, though, not just a random story. Because why would we read about Joseph's story? Is that sort of like reading about, um, I don't know, a, a king in England's story or you know, Charlemagne or whoever? I mean, is that, why do we care about this guy? Oh, because this is our family story. Because this is actually your family roots. So when you read these stories, it's almost like, hey, pull up a chair. A dad's going to tell you, you know, not me, dad, but like imagine the storyteller saying, Dad's going to tell you some things about your great, 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 great grandpa. I'm going to tell you something about Joseph. I'm going to tell you some things that were pretty tough for his life. Oh, really? This is our family story. Because Jesus, as we said last week, because Jesus is the culmination of this story, he opens up the way for all of us to join the story. So, good news, Jews, Gentiles, even if you're not. By, uh, by ethnicity from the family of Abraham, by Jesus, you are all in the family of Abraham. So all of a sudden, the Joseph story becomes your story, my story, our family story. So we're going to see some things in his life and say, all right, how, how do we find ourselves in this? Genesis 37, verse 3 through 9. Now Israel, which is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was born when Jacob was old. Also because Joseph was born... Uh, as, the, as Rachel's son. And after a long time of Rachel not being able to, to have children, she finally has Joseph. And so Jacob, obviously, had loved Rachel more than... Which, by the way, this is... Sorry, I just got to say this. If you're looking for the biblical model of a family in the Old Testament, you won't find it. The biblical picture of womanhood, the biblical picture of manhood. I like to say to someone, oh, what does that look like Exactly. The one where the man has two wives because the first wife he got tricked into marrying and he didn't really love. The one where he fathered 12 children from four different women. That biblical model of a family. So sometimes, you know, let's take the stained glass thing off a little bit and say, the Bible's not trying to show us ideals. It's trying to show us God at work in the midst of a messy world. And it ought to be good news. Because whatever our story is, here's God. So here's Joseph. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his brothers, they hated him and couldn't even talk nicely to him. Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers, which made them hate him even more. What was this dream, you say? He said to them, listen to this dream I had when we were binding stalks of grain in the field. My stalk got up and stood upright while your stalks gathered around it and bowed down to my stalk. (laughs) And his brothers said to him, will you really be our king and rule over us? This, of course, is a culture that, that 
had learned to understand that the younger serves the older. How could this be? And so they hated him even more because of the dreams he told them. And then Joseph had another dream and described it to his brothers. I've just dreamed again. Oh boy. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. You don't say. Now we don't know that Joseph shares this out of arrogance. We don't know that there's pride behind it. We don't know. We're not told much about the stuff in his heart. But we do know that it didn't work out so well for him because of he, sh- he shared that. And I think the question for us as we're looking at this first sort of stop in the story is how do we handle the promise? How do we handle God's promise toward us? Sometimes I think you say, well, it, it's easy maybe to, and, and, and I really um, would, would ask you not to do this with the story of Joseph, but it's very easy to sort of take the story of Joseph and abstract it into this, um, whatever dreams are in your heart, follow your dream. This is how Walt Disney would interpret Joseph. So whatever is your dream, just follow it. That's not the point. Let's, look, Joseph didn't go away to sort of vision plan his life. He didn't go away to say, you know what, I'm going to make a life mission statement. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, this is not the result of Joseph saying, here's my destiny for my life. Point one, point two. He, he doesn't, this is a call that gets thrust on him. So if we're going to really find ourselves in the story, the point is not to, to dream up for yourself your own goals and your own ambitions, because that does lead to pride, and that does lead to selfishness, and that does lead you to think that you're more specialer than anyone else. Instead, though, it begins with God and His call and he, His work. In a very real way, Joseph finds himself in the middle of what God is doing. Not really because he asked for it. So he finds himself as this recipient of a promise of a dream. How do we handle that? I think sometimes about how we tend to think of ourselves as the ones who are heirs now of the promise in Christ. And so we, it's easy for us to sort of see ourselves as like, well, you know, we're pretty good because we're, we're going to heaven. And what about you? You're not. Um, or the kind of attitude that would provoke things like, oh, so-and-so? Reality check. Gandhi's in hell. Or whatever that may be. Reality check. So-and-so's this. Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I, I don't care about that person because they're going to hell. And there's this arrogance that can come up in us because of a promise that we've all of a sudden been part, become part of. You and I have become heirs of a promise in Christ. But how do you handle that promise? How do you handle that promise? Does the promise that you are now part of make you sort of say, and we don't know if Joseph really was proud, but it, it could easily happen to us, that make you sort of say, well, gee, I guess I'm better than. How easy is it to go through life, um, maybe at the grocery store, maybe on a walk, Maybe when you see something on TV, maybe when you read something in the newspaper or online or whatever it is, how easy is it to say, geesh, they really screwed up their life? How easy is it to sort of say, well, you know, what, you know, whatever. I mean, that's their kind of thing. And thank God I'm not like that. Thank God I'm an heir of the promise and whatever, whatever, whatever it is. It's very easy to 
all of a sudden let a promise become a basis for self-righteousness or self-inflatedness. Again, we don't know that that's the case for Joseph, but we do know ourselves. And we know that how we handle God's promise to us is a big deal. Well, Joseph, the story goes on. His brothers, you know, they, they, they try to... Uh, at first, they put him down in the pit, and they're like, we can't leave him here. This is kind of bad. Okay, I got a better idea. Let's sell him as a slave. Oh, that's so much better. And, um, and so then they do this whole thing where they stain the robe with blood, and they tell dad that a wild animal got him or something like that. He's been killed, and really, they've sold him as a slave. And he finds himself in Egypt. What happens when you find yourself in Egypt? John Goldengay, Old Testament professor at Fuller, has said, Wherever you are, it's probably Egypt. The stories of the Old Testament, you find these characters in some way relating to, going back to, finding themselves in Egypt. And so here's Joseph, he's in Egypt, but things have sort of worked out okay. He's a slave in, in this guy's house, Potiphar's house, but he, becomes, he does really well at it. I mean, this is a guy that seems to rise uh, to places of, 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 if you can call it leadership, a sort of leadership. And then this happens, Genesis 39, verse 8 through 12. He refused and said, okay, I need to fill in more of the story here. The, the, the Bible tells us that Joseph is a handsome dude. And so Potiphar's wife, we don't know much about her other than she has the hots for Joseph. And so she tries to put the moves on him. And he refused and said to his master's wife, with me here, my master doesn't pay attention to anything in his household He's put everything he has under my supervision. No one is greater than I am in this household. And he hasn't denied me anything except you, since you are his wife. How could I do this terrible thing and sin against God? Here's Joseph recognizing that he has an obligation and honor to his master first, and then also on a higher level to God. But every single day she tried to convince him, but he, would not, he wouldn't agree to sleep with her or even to be with her. And one day when Joseph arrived at the house to do his work, none of the household's men were there. He finds himself alone. However temptation strikes you, the moments that it's strongest are probably the moments when you're alone. And she grabbed his garment saying, lie down with me, but he left his garment in her hands and ran outside. The question here is, how do we handle temptation? Here's Joseph, finds himself in Egypt, a place you would not have chosen, but here he is. And relatively speaking, he's done well. And then, all of a sudden, there's this temptation. How do we handle it? What do we do when we find ourselves in the place where you could, if you just said this and that, and maybe you kind of told the story a little bit differently, maybe the boss would reward it that way, or maybe if you kind of fudged on this, or maybe, or maybe straight up, it's sexual temptation. Maybe it's the extreme availability of stuff on phones and iPads and computers. Maybe it's that. You know what's interesting is sexual temptation is one of the ones that the Bible says you really don't need to try to stand and resist it. Hang on. You're like, what? <laughs> what? 
you need to flee it. You leave it. You leave the environment altogether. Sometimes I think we want to show that we're strong enough to stand in the environment and deal with it and say no to it. Paul tells Timothy, flee it. Flee youthful lust. Get away from it. Run. Maybe he had Joseph in mind when Paul was saying this to Timothy. He said, look, the story kind of goes that when you find yourself in that, but just get out of there because you're not strong enough. You want to think that you are, but you're not. There's no shame in finding ways to eliminate the environments and the occasions for this stuff. There's no shame in it. Can we speak honestly about this? Especially maybe for the men in this place. There's no shame in putting locks on your TV channels. I have them. There's no shame in disabling things. and th- th- There's no shame in that. Because what we want to say to ourselves is, well, I ought to be strong enough to resist it. And what Joseph reminds us, nobody's strong enough to resist this. Just get out of the room. Just leave it. Run away. Run away. Run away. But that doesn't sound very strong. Well, that's just it, isn't it? That's why we confess our sins every week, to remind ourselves that we're not strong, that we're weak. I I think there's this paradox in here that really our, 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 our walk in, in the Lord sort of becomes stronger the more aware we are of our frailty and weakness. It's kind of this strange paradox. And so Joseph is able to run away. How do we handle temptation? But you know, the story goes on, and uh, things don't work out so well for him there, because you would think, aha, be honorable, flee temptation, get out of the room, and the Lord will bless you. Or you'll end up in prison, as was the case for Joseph. You see, it's very hard to principalize the Old Testament, because it's... So he does what's right and ends up in jail. In Genesis 40, verse 1 through 8, Sometime later, both the wine steward and the baker for Egypt's king offended their master, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief wine steward and the chief baker, and he put them under arrest with the commander of the royal guard in the same jail where Joseph was imprisoned. And then the commander of the royal guard assigned Joseph to assist them. Now, wait a minute, this is this guy. Even in jail, he gets given some sort of leadership role. I mean, who does he think he is? Tim Tebow? I mean, like this guy, everywhere he goes, people like him. Ha ha, ha ha. I'm keeping the streak alive of Tebow references in Sunday. Just because the season's over doesn't mean it's come on now. After they had been under arrest for some time, both of them, the wine steward and the baker of Egypt's king who were imprisoned in the jail, had dreams one night. And each man's dream had its own meaning. And when Joseph met them in the morning, he saw that they were upset. He asked the officers of Pharaoh who were under arrest with him in his master's house, why do you look so distressed today? And they answered, we both have dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. Joseph says, well, don't interpretations belong to God? Describe your dreams to me. I love that. <laughs> these guys are really bumming, you know, like, yeah, we got these dreams, we can't figure it out. Joseph's like, doesn't God do that? Tell, tell it to me. How do we handle adversity? Many times in life, you'll find yourself in a place that you didn't choose. Sometimes it's a good place. 
Sometimes it's a bad place. In each of these moments, the questions, where is God in the midst of this, and how do we turn to him? Here's Joseph in this prison saying, well, God does that. Let's ask him. As if to say, the implication is, he and I are on pretty good terms. I'm still his people, and he's still my God even though I'm miles and miles away from home. Imagine that. I'm no, he's nowhere near his father's house. He's nowhere near the, the, the rhythms of worship that maybe his family had just begun to do. They're all very early in this journey of worshiping Yahweh. We talked about this last week. And yet, here he is, saying, okay, well, Egypt, prison, I think there's a way. What happens when we find ourselves in those moments? Are there, is there a way to choose forgiveness and grace? Is there a way to choose to lean into God, to turn to God, even in those moments? Now, it's easy for us to read the story because we know Joseph's a good guy. But put yourself there in that prison. Imagine yourself there, somewhere in Egypt, circa, what would this be, 1000 B.C. or something? Maybe longer ago? Imagine that. It'd be very easy, I think, for me to sort of say, well, you know, hey, let's just, it's just me. I'm here. It's just me, and things aren't working out. Leave me alone. You know, I mean, I, I get like that when it's a 6 a.m. flight and the line in security was too long and I finally got on the plane. It's like, you know, I'm going to put my hoodie on, my headphones in. Just leave me alone. Here's Joseph in prison saying, what, what's the matter? What, are you okay? Always looking out, maybe. How do we handle adversity? But this last moment in his life is really tremendous. Because from there, he interprets their dreams. The one guy ends up uh, dying anyway, and that was part of the dream. And then the other guy, uh, you know, it works out, and he gets released. And, and so, but, but they're, they're supposed to remember Joseph, and they're supposed to speak for him, and they don't. They forget him. And, and, then, uh, and then there comes a moment where Pharaoh all of a sudden has a dream. It's pretty cool that Joseph was willing to listen to the dreams of someone in prison and to take interest in how he could help them And then eventually he gets to interpret the dreams of the most powerful man of the known world. I think that's pretty cool. Because sometimes we find ourselves in these places and we think, well, this isn't anything good. Well, God can't use this, but one day when I have my business, or when I have my family, or when I have my church, or when I have this, then I'll really let the Lord use me. What if God wants to work through you right here in this dark cell? Well, God, no, I got enough that's bad in my life. There's no, 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 what if I want to encourage someone through you even as you're going through stuff of your own? And Joseph finally gets called out of this prison and called up to serve Pharaoh. Joseph, this is Genesis 41, 46 to 49. Joseph was 30 years old when he began to serve Pharaoh, Egypt's king, and when he had left Pharaoh's court, and traveled throughout the entire land of Egypt. 
And there's this whole thing here. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. And he collected all the food during the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt and stored the food in cities. And in each city, he stored the food from the fields surrounding it. And Joseph amassed the grain like sand of the sea. There was so much, he stopped trying to measure it because it was beyond measuring. The, the, the story, what we're missing here that we'll just summarize, is basically Pharaoh has this dream. And it's about fat cows and skinny cows and all this stuff. And Joseph says, okay, I know what's going on. Basically, there's going to be seven years of plenty and we really need to store up. And then there'll be seven years of, of famine and, and then we'll have enough during those years. And so the Pharaoh does it. And he does exactly, it happens exactly as Joseph interprets. And it ends up causing them to survive. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. So the question is, what do you do with influence? How do you handle influence? How do you handle influence? Because now he's in this place of influence. And he allows the Lord to speak through him to save the people of God. No, not yet. To save the ones who have turned and worshipped Joseph's God. No. Joseph is used by God. He uses his influence in a way to bless and provide and serve his own family. Nope. Joseph, in his place of influence, is used by God to bless and save Egypt. What? I thought we are supposed to say, down with Pharaoh. Let my people go and all that stuff. That's later. What? So back to the question we began with tonight. What if you're in Egypt? Furthermore, what if you're doing quite well in Egypt? What if things are going okay? Then what? Uh, uh, Sometimes I think the church has not been as helpful because we only have one model of piety or or selflessness, and that is to be barefoot and begging and poor. And, And the friars and all the people that did that in the medieval was a wonderful resistance in, in their own way. But there are other ways of being the people of God. Sometimes you're the people of God in the midst of a system that is wicked and you rise to the top of it. Now what? Now what do you do? I wonder if God has us here precisely so we can be the means of blessing to people, even people that don't know him yet. Jesus, praying for his disciples, says, I do not pray that you would be taken out of this world. Well, what? But I pray that you will be protected from the evil one and that you would not be of this world. A phrase that later on gets picked up to be used as, we're in the world but not of it. You say, wait a minute, so even when Jesus prayed for his disciples, He said, just so you know, fellas, I ain't praying that you'll be airlifted out of here. Uh, So all of this, hang on, just endure it. One day we'll fly away into the sweet by and by stuff. That's not the way we see God at work in the scriptures. Instead, what we see is God allowing his people to find themselves in the midst of difficult situations, to find themselves in the midst of Egypt and Babylon and all these horrible places And he's calling them and saying, would you be the people of God right here? And would you find a way to open up blessing to even those who don't yet?
call on my name. Some people ask, you know, hey, you know, Pastor Brady, you're going, what? There's these dream centers and all this stuff. I mean, it just seems like, why would we do that? Why would we offer free medical care for people without asking them to first convert? Because we believe that a church is in a city for the good of the city. Because we believe that where the people of God are, they should bring blessing. You know what's amazing? Joseph finds himself in this spot where Pharaoh's given him this dream and Joseph interprets it. He ends up being the way that God not only saves Egypt, but he ends up being the means by which God also saves his brothers. Remember the rest of the story. They come begging and he does this whole thing where he frames them for a a crime and all this stuff. You know, again, the guy's not perfect, but he's working out his forgiveness. It's happening in stages, you know, and the... This is, Joseph's not perfect, but, but he, you know, he frames them, he tests them and all this stuff, and then finally he gives the epic speech of, you know, he weeps, and he says, you meant it for evil, but God produced something good out of it and has brought salvation to my father's house. Not only did Joseph bless Egypt, but that blessing that was on Egypt ended up being the blessing for his own Last week, we read about Abraham being called to be a blessing. God said to him, through you, who would be blessed? All families of the earth. You think this Joseph story, finding himself in Egypt, being a blessing to these wicked people who aren't worshiping it, you think that's part of God's way of saying, I told you, I told you that through your family, all nations are going to be blessed. The question is, How do we handle that? Do you believe that? Or do we want to say, as Israel later did, that all this is for me? And this is for us to have safe families and protected homes and and just, just keep us safe and hunker down and one day we'll walk streets of gold. Rubbish. God's saying, no, you're here in Egypt. Wake up. Could it be that there's a plan for us to bring about blessing to those who don't yet call on his name? What if? What if your prayer is no longer, God, save me from this wretched job. But God, while I'm in this job, how can I bless this company? Bless this employer? Cause this thing to flourish? What if? Several months ago, um, well, really over the last year or so, Pastor Brady and I and a number of others have been prayerfully talking about what the way forward is for new life. How do we continue to grow in our city? What do we do? Do we amass more here on this part of the city? That'd be fine, I suppose. We already have large groups of people that gather here. That's not, there's nothing evil in that. Or are we the riches of God's house that ought to be scattered throughout the city? And we started talking about this. How do, what, what, what's, the, what's maybe a, a way forward? And we began to talk about other locations and other campuses. What if we could be the people of God in a different part of the city? And see what God will do there. 
What if part of how New Life continues to obey God's mission for us in the city is not to say, come and see, come up here, come and see, but to say, let's go and be in different places. So we've kicked it around. Sunday night, in a very real way, was the first kind of startup. This is a micro-congregation of New Life Church. This is a campus, if you will. So several months ago, Brady said, you know, I just feel like we're supposed to open another campus next year, in 2012, maybe by Easter. And we started talking about that, and I said, well, I have a thought. It's kind of a crazy thought. What would you ever think of a campus downtown? And he says, for who? I says, maybe for me. And I, I tell you, the thought of it freaked me out, because I like where I am. But there's something in me that says, what if the way I'm wired which is weird, but with this, I don't know, whatever, pseudo-intellectual thing or whatever it is, artist, musician, slash. What if the way I am is for a reason? That there's a way that I can open up something for someone else to be blessed, to be fed. And as I thought about it more, I thought about all of you. And I thought about what if Sunday night is a special community. The way we are with the service and the liturgy and we follow the church calendar and the connectedness that we have with one another, you all are an amazing group. And so what if we could be we somewhere else and see what God would do with that? So as we began to talk about it, Brady said, well, why don't you, why don't you look for buildings? And I thought, no, I'm not really going to do that. And then he kept bringing it up at all these different meetings that I was at. So then I started to realize, okay, maybe I really need to look for buildings because he said this like twice now. And uh, he kept bringing it up at different staff meetings and all that. And so I called a realtor. We went down. Long story short, we, we found, uh, I, I think in, in a somewhat providential way, and I can tell you that story another time, but we found this building that was actually, it's actually the first African-American church in our city. The land was uh, uh, granted, gifted by General Palmer, the founder of Colorado Springs. And this building, this particular building, the, the, the stone structure, was built in 1897. A picture of it, you can look at the outside of it. Isn't that gorgeous? It was bought by this couple who owned the Garden of the Gods Gourmet Company, and they took the inside of it and totally remodeled it. And yeah, ooh, yeah, I love that. Um, painted it, restored it, refurbished it. You can't see this, but there's like stenciled painting work on the ceilings, the panels of it. It's just beautiful. So they intend to use it as a high-end event center, weddings and whatnot. And uh, we went in, and the people that owned it weren't there, and so we just kind of looked around. And then, and then the next day, the lady calls me, and she says, hey, I'm so and sorry, I own this place, and I heard you were by yesterday. I said, yeah. I said, but you know, just to be upfront with you, I'm a pastor at New Life, and and already I'm sort of holding my breath, like, does that, is that the deal breaker right there, you know? <laughs> yeah, click, yeah. I'm a pastor at New Life, and we're looking at this for a church service that we might do here on Sunday mornings. And she says, well, great news, I'm a missionary kid. And um, my husband and I felt like when we bought this place, that not only would it be an event center, but that if we built it, they would come, so to speak. That this would, yeah, she, she knew she was quoting Field of Dreams. But she said, you know, we just sort of had this sense that this would be a, a, a place of worship again. And that would, nothing would make us happier than that. And so they gave us this very, very favorable rate to just rent it 
for a few hours on a Sunday morning each week and to meet down there. So, Sunday night is not going away. Our plan is to keep the service going. Some of you are like, okay, glad is this the end? <laughs> I don't know. But Sunday night, <laughs> truth in advertising, no. Sunday night is going to, we're going to keep Sunday night service going. And I will continue to do both for a season. We don't know how long that season will be. But what I would love is if for those of you who can, for those of you that feel a tug to do this, come with us and let's do this together. This is not a church plant like Ross or Rob or, or uh, Aaron. This is new life. This is an extension of new life church. Shared resources, shared pro- everything that Sunday night is to new life church, new life downtown will be to new life church. Does that make sense? 100% the same. Uh, my office will still be up here, except for when I'm down one day a week at Poor Richards or something. And uh, we're going to figure this out together, but I- I'll tell you this. Our idea with this, our vision for this is not about a zip code. It's just not about, oh, well, let's, let's just get everybody who lives in a specific zip code or a few zip codes and just get, that's not it at all. I think part of the beauty of this is to erase some of the lines between us and them and to say, I don't care if you live in Briargate or Glen Eagle or Woodman or downtown or Manitou. Part of this is saying, if there's a community of the people of God, then let's erase some of the other barriers. And let's let Briargate soccer moms worship Jesus together with downtown hipsters with their pants rolled up in indoor scarves, you know. Sorry, I do that too. <laughs> but I think that's part of the challenge of it. To not say, well, I define myself by this. Or I define, you know, we define ourselves by Jesus. And this is also not about saying, well, let's go reach those people that live. <laughs> no. There's no those people. There is no us versus them. What this is is to say, look, we're in this city. How can we, as a church in this city, go and be the church in a different part of the city? That's all it is. And maybe there's something special with a lot of us connected to one another that I would love it if a bunch of us came down there and did it. Let's do it. And then we'll regrow Sunday night to be, you know, we'll replenish that. Trust the Lord to replenish that. Okay, so this will start on Easter Sunday, which is April 8th. Uh, I think we have a slide for that. Maybe not. Uh, Easter Sunday, April 8th, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Um... Probably by invitation, we'll do a couple services prior, a couple Sundays prior to that just to get everything worked out. Uh, there are these beautiful white folding chairs that will seat about, that, that will fit about 250, 260 chairs. Um, probably that means 200 people, so that's the reason for two services, just to make sure we don't max it. We will have child care there, uh, all the way up until second grade is the plan. Newborn all the way up until second grade. Um, there will be worship there. There will be communion. It, it, it is... Um, anyway, so, so look, here, here's part of this. I, I am, to be honest with you, as freaked out about this as you could be. But, <laughs> but I'm also compelled by this. And I'm also compelled to be stretched in this way. Because of jo- the Joseph story, maybe. Maybe it's perfect that we're talking about Joseph tonight. Because how do you handle influence? Do you use it only for your good? 
Or do you use it to open up a way for people who otherwise would not be fed? The, the themes in Joseph's life, Joseph's life resonate because there was another beloved son who was sold out by his brothers, found himself descending to the pit, and then all of a sudden being raised up to the highest place. And because of Jesus, blessing flows to all people. It also means that even if your answer to all four of these questions tonight were, yeah, not good. How did I handle the promise? Not well. How did I handle temptation? Really messed that one up. It means that God is the one who redeems. Imagine that you're not Joseph. Imagine you're one of Joseph's brothers. Would you say that the way to have the Lord save your family and make it forward was, well, first of all, let's sell our brother as a slave, step one. Step two, lie to our father. No, you wouldn't script it. This is, again, why the Joseph life is not purely prescription. But the point is this. What if you're sitting here tonight and you say, well, Glenn, I've failed miserably. I've made lots of, I've mishandled things. I've mishandled opportunities and influence and promises and adversity and temptation. I've mishandled all of it. And God is saying to us tonight that even in those situations, He is working to redeem. Will you say yes to Jesus? Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're a God who chooses to work within our stories. That doesn't mean we don't have a role to play, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be faithful where we find ourselves. But Lord, we confess tonight that sometimes we've made a mess of things. And we confess tonight that sometimes we find ourselves in prisons and places that we didn't choose. And yet, Jesus, you are there. You redeem, you work, you save, you bless. So would you use us as a people to open up the way for others? Just as Joseph opened up the way for others, even his own brothers who he had every right to be mad at, Lord, would you use us to open up the way for others? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.